Grace, mercy, and peace are yours. From God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Today is week two of our sermon series, Most Likely To. I said we've kind of used this as a nod to a normal end of the school year and thinking about the yearbook idea of most likely to. Do you remember your high school yearbook? Were you someone that was most likely to do something? We talked about some of those categories last week, and maybe you could think of some others, like most likely to get married first, or most likely to be the CEO of a company, maybe the most likely to play in the NBA. Today, we're going to look at the life of Noah, and we'll talk about Noah's life under the idea of most likely to engineer an ark. What a huge undertaking. Can you imagine building something as big as Noah did? And then think about the fact that Noah did this without power tools or any of the other modern conveniences that we would think of to build something so big. It made me think about my appreciation for all the engineers out there. A shout out to you and a thank you to all that you do to make our lives easier with your plans and designs. My brain simply doesn't work the same way and I'm thankful to God for you. Are you familiar with the question or the answer to the question of this African saying? How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Some pretty good advice, isn't it? You understand what that means. If you're faced with something big, a, a huge task, a monumental undertaking, take it a little bit at a time. One day at a time is some pretty good advice, isn't it? Even in the midst of what we're going through today, and as we see today, the huge undertaking that God had Noah do in this building of the ark, we'll see also that God strengthened him to accomplish it by the promises that he gave. Today, as we take a look at Genesis chapter 6 and this engineering of the ark, the instructions that God gave to Noah to build this ark, we'll see that what Noah was really doing was preparing for judgment. And yes, that was a monumental task. But as we see the monumental task, we're going to see how intricately weaved into the tasks that God gave to Noah were his promises. God's promises to save, and not just Noah, but you and me as well. Hit pause if you need to, find your Bibles, open them up to Genesis chapter 6 with me. And we are going to read Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind, whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord." If you let your eyes glance over chapter 5, what you'll find in chapter 5 is a genealogy. It's, it's Moses recording Adam's line all the way from creation to the time of Noah. And as we go through that genealogy, we meet uh, Noah's father, a man by the name of Lamech. 
and Noah's grandfather, a, name by, a man by the name of Methuselah. An interesting note about this timeline with the flood is that it came in Noah's 600th year. And if you add up the years, his father Lamech died only five years before the flood began. And his grandfather Methuselah was actually alive up to the year that the flood started. As we take a look at this flood, we see God's reasons, the background for why God sent this flood. God had reason to bring this judgment on the earth. And so in the middle of this genealogy, Moses interrupts the flow by telling us the story of the flood by recounting the life of Noah. He begins by telling us about the situation on earth, the wickedness and the violence that was there, all resulting from sons of God, he says, marrying daughters of men. Think about that for just a second. A lot has been written about what that could possibly mean, but the simplest explanation is this. Believers were marrying unbelievers. And those believers were putting aside what was important to them, their faith in the coming Messiah, for something else. What was more important to them is how their spouse looked. And God knew this pattern was going to cause trouble for his promise, the promise of the Messiah that he made. And so he set a timeline. And yet even in this timeline, don't we see the patience and the love of our Heavenly Father? 120 years he gave people to turn things around, to repent. We're also introduced in these verses to people by the name Nephilim. It's a Hebrew word that means to fall on or to attack. And so the lives of these Nephilim were marked with violence. And in a strange twist, what had happened in the world in Noah's day is that things had kind of become upside down. These violent Nephilim, they were the heroes of old. They were the men of renown and not the people who followed God's will for their lives. God gives another reason for his judgment, the reason for sending the flood when he says this, every inclination of his heart was evil, only evil, all the time. That is a sad commentary on the results of Adam and Eve's fall into sin back in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, they caused each person that came after them to also be sinful. We are born with original or inherited sin. King David says this well in Psalm 51 when he writes, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. This isn't how God wanted it to happen. He didn't want to have to bring judgment on the earth. And Moses lets us in on God's thought process a little bit when he tells us two different, in two different ways that this was not a happy time for God. God was grieved and his heart was filled with pain. Moses gives God human emotions to help us understand that he didn't want to bring this judgment. And yet that was the only conclusion that God could come to. The promise of the Messiah was so endangered by the way the world was going that God knew he had to act. He had to wipe out not just human beings, but every creature from the face of the earth. Yet that was only part of the story, wasn't it? Because verse 8 introduces us to the second part of the story by simply telling us, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. How did it make you feel when I read through the description of the world in Noah's day? Did you see some similarities to the world in which we live? Did it seem to be even maybe a little bit ripped from the headlines? Jesus said, as the end gets closer, the love of most will grow cold. 
And here's what we know. When the love of God is absent in the world, then love for people will be absent as well. Maybe that describes a little bit what we can see in our world today. Maybe we see a flipping of upside down of things as well. The heroes that, that people worship, the people that are known and, and famous in this world are often not the people that are following what God says in his word. Maybe that's one of the reasons God might allow trouble to come into this world every once in a while. Maybe more often than we'd like to admit. Maybe what God is doing is giving us a chance to think. Maybe this pandemic is an opportunity to have us analyze our own hearts and our own lives. I know it's not easy, and I apologize if I make you feel uncomfortable, but it's necessary to hear. Maybe God's using this pandemic and the other troubles that come to our lives as a call to repentance. Maybe it's a way for us to reflect on what's in our own hearts. How, how important is God really in my life? And is my love for God then also spilling over into my love for others? It's sad to say we don't always measure up to what God wants from us, do we? I bet there's been a time in your life where you've been driving along in your car and all of a sudden one of these lights pops up on the dashboard. You know how that makes you feel, right? A little bit of dread falls over you because you know that you're probably going to have to repair, get some repairs for your car. Even more, you wonder if you're going to make it to your destination. Is it possible that the troubles that God allows in this life are sort of like that check engine light? It's sort of a little reminder to us that we want to get to our final destination, that heaven is waiting for us, but that we have to face things on the way there, that we have to reprioritize, think about what's truly important. Maybe we could call it a, a check your heart light that God is giving us. In our Bible study this past Wednesday via Zoom, we, we talked a little bit about one of the things, the blessings that has come from being safer at home. I feel ashamed that I have taken for granted the opportunity to worship every Sunday. I'm shamed that I have not appreciated the brothers and sisters in Christ that God has given me. I've taken you for granted, and for that I am sorry. I pray that this virus, this idea of staying at home and being away from worship will make us cherish the opportunities that we have to worship our Lord together and the brotherhood and sisterhood that we have in our Savior Jesus as we seek to love God and love one another. Let's move on to verses 9 to 16 and see how God used Noah in this plan that he had for the world. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was, full, was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people, to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Maybe you heard how that account started in verse 9. This is the account of Noah. In, in my English Bible, Genesis has 50 chapters. 
But the way Moses organized it when he originally wrote it was around these 10 accounts that he has in the book. Each one of them starts with the same phrase. This is the account of. This account of Noah is actually the third account in the book of Genesis. And as we're introduced to Noah, there's two words that are used in our English text to describe him. He, he's righteous. That word is a courtroom term. It's the idea of being declared innocent. And of course, God declared Noah innocent on the basis of his faith in the coming Messiah. The word blameless perhaps gives us a little bit of the wrong idea. Moses is not telling us that Noah is without sin. Maybe a better word in, in, our, in our language today would to you, be to use the word devout. In other words, Noah lived his faith. He knew that, that God had given him a tremendous gift and he lived it out in his life. Standing in stark contrast to the wickedness of the world was this righteous Noah living his life for Jesus, for the coming Messiah. Here's an amazing thing, an incredible part of this story. God tells Noah what his plan is all about. He comes and told, he told Noah that he was going to destroy the earth. God conferred with a human being to let him know his plans. And God asks Noah to build the ark. In these verses, we're given the dimensions of the ark, 450 feet by 75 feet by 45 feet. Originally, Moses would have written this in cubits, 300 cubits by 50 cubits by 30 cubits. And a cubit spans from the top of a person's fingers to their elbow, about 18 inches. Thus, the translation of 450, 75, and 45. Let me give you a little bit of a picture of how big the ark would have been. Hopefully, this will help. On the top picture, you'll see the ark resting on a football field. And so you see that the ark is quite a bit longer at 450 feet than a football field. On the bottom, you get an idea of how big the ark was in comparison to a jet airliner or a submarine. And yes, the inside would have held an awful lot as well. Somebody figured out that it would take about 480 semi-trailers to match the volume of Noah's ark. What a massive undertaking. What a monumental task that God asked Noah to build this ark. As he built it, Noah was also supposed to put an 18-inch gap around the top of the ark. That would allow for airflow in and out to keep fresh air for Noah and his family and the animals as well. If you're getting the picture of, of this three-deck uh, floating zoo, then you're on the right track. The different rooms that God had him made were for Noah and his family and the different animals. You see, it really was more of a box than anything because God didn't need the ark to be a sailing vessel. It didn't need to sail from point A to point B. It only needed to float. God only needed the ark to stay above the water and all of the destruction that was happening underneath. What God was interested in was saving, saving the precious cargo that was aboard that ark. And by allowing that ark to float above all of the, the destruction happening beneath, the cargo was saved. Noah and his family were saved. The animals were saved. And yes, even better, God's purpose for sending the ark becomes clear. What God was preserving most of all was a promise that he made, a promise that he would send a savior from sin, a promise for you and for me. Peter says it this way in his first epistle in chapter three. 
These spirits disobeyed long ago when God's patience was waiting in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In this ark, a few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you not the removal of dirt from the body, but the guarantee of a good conscience before God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's almost amazing, isn't it, that the same waters of the flood accomplished two things? Yes, there was destruction and death beneath, but those waters lifted that ark high above the earth and saved. They saved Noah and his family, and thus the promise that God had made to send a Messiah. Peter connects those waters to the saving waters of baptism. What a blessing for you and I. Maybe, maybe many of us don't remember our baptism if we were baptized as infants, but if you can recall your baptism, what a special day. A day in which God, through water, connected with his word, water in, applied to your head in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, sealed to you all of his promises, guaranteed you that you are his own, a member of his family, an heir of eternal life. What a blessing to reflect on that baptism and the water that saved us in baptism every single day to give us strength to live, to face the monumental tasks that we face here, knowing something so much better is yet to come because God has made us heirs of life with him in heaven. Let's finish the chapter, the final verses, verses 17 to 22 of chapter 6. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. The final verses give Noah a few more specifics of exactly what God was planning to do. The the reason for the ark was because there was going to be a flood, a flood that destroyed all living things and all human beings. But God had a plan, not just to preserve Noah and his family, but all of the animals as well. Pairs of animals actually came to Noah. He didn't have to go out searching for them or trapping them in any way. They came to him to be preserved. There was another task that God gave to Noah, and I wonder how monumental this task was of gathering all of the food. We know from the rest of the account of the flood that Noah and his family spent 375 days on the ark. Imagine gathering enough food for an entire year into one place. Some of you, maybe when you knew that we would be safer at home, went out shopping to gather food for just a couple of weeks. Noah had to do it for a whole year. Some have speculated, interestingly enough, that, that perhaps God helped Noah a little bit in this regard, too. Maybe he brought the juvenile animals to Noah, smaller animals that wouldn't eat as much. Or maybe many of the animals hibernated for a lot of the time on the ark. It's interesting to speculate about, but the Bible doesn't tell us. And yet in these verses, there's one very important thing that the Bible does clearly state. God establishes a covenant with Noah. I will establish my covenant with you, God says, and with your sons, with the families after you. You understand what God's saying, right? 
God hasn't given up on a promise. A promise made in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve is a promise that continued through Noah and continued all the way to the time that Jesus was born. God was going to send a Messiah, and that Messiah was going to come through Noah and his family, through their lineage. It, were, it was those promises that, that God made to Noah that, that kept him strong in, in the tasks that he had to carry out. Noah did everything just as the Lord commanded. The Apostle Peter in his second epistle says this, He did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. Yes, God's purpose in sending the flood was to save as much as it was to destroy, to save a promise to send a Savior for you and me, a Savior from sin. So what can we take from this account of Noah and the flood for our lives and in our world today? Well, you and I, just as Noah was facing the judgment of the flood, we truly are preparing for judgment every single day too, aren't we? And so we want to take to heart God's call to repentance, God's reminder to us to stay close to him, to hold on to the truths that he has given us, to, to make him, his word, his salvation, the most important thing in our lives. When we think about the coronavirus and all of the things that it's brought, the economic downturn that's a part of it that certainly is affecting some of you, the jobs that have been lost, the health that's in question, we wonder too, about the monumental tasks in front of us when it comes to going back to normal life. Will that even happen? Will life the way we used to know it ever be the same? But here's one thing that is the same. It's God's desire. God's desire to have you live with him forever. The covenant that God made with Noah is a covenant with you too. You are his own children, heirs of eternal life through Jesus' work. That's what we celebrate every time we hear what Jesus did for us on that cross. Jesus defeated our enemies. The most monumental task was accomplished by Jesus on that cross when he wiped out sin and defeated death. That victory of Jesus was sealed to you and sealed to me when Jesus emptied, left his tomb empty. Yes, the joy of the resurrection on Easter Sunday continues every single day for us. Joy that we can reflect on, that we can celebrate because it means our forgiveness and it means that we too will inherit eternal life with our Lord. Some takeaways from our sermon today. Number one, yes, we're, we may face circumstances in an imperfect world that seem monumental to overcome. There's so much of this world that's out of our control, but it's in God's control. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Secondly, God remains faithful in his desire to save us. Yes, the one who began the good work of faith in you and me will carry it on to completion when Jesus comes again. Finally, number three, God is greater than anything that can happen to us in this life. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No trouble in this life takes God by surprise as he leads us through this life to our joy of heaven with him. Are you familiar with the symbols that are on the screen? It's been around for a little bit of time now. I've seen people wear it on t-shirts and sweatshirts or have it on plaques or maybe those little wristbands that people wear. I didn't know what it meant for a while. I had to ask somebody what those symbols meant and just take a look at it with me real briefly. The G stands for God. The arrow open to the G is greater than, and then the other two arrows pointing up and pointing down 
the ups and the downs. God is greater than our ups and our downs. What a beautiful comfort that no matter what we face in this life, God is greater. He's greater than coronavirus. He's greater than any economic downturn. He's greater than sin and death. James wrote in his epistle, Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father, Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. No, God probably does not have a monumental task for you like building an ark, but he's already taken care of the most monumental task of all, defeating sin and death in your place. God has established his covenant with you. You are his own child, and he's leading you all the way to perfect joy with him in heaven. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding will guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.